0: personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: <clears> at <throat> and connects an O to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream.
0: Connect the snooze. Connecting changes everything. ATT. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and ooh, it's been a lot of groans
0: over here lately because Carney, our loyal mailbot, has now been procedurally generating dad jokes, and they are not very good. Uh, Rob, <laughs> did you catch that most recent one?
1: Oh, uh, uh, yeah, I did. You know, but, you know, it it may not have been funny, but it's it's endearing in a way, you know?
0: Yeah, so so he, it's all stuff like, what do
1: you call a turkey that goes to space? I don't know. What do you call a turkey that goes to space? Poo-poo in the toilet the
0: answer
1: hmm okay Uh, yeah I I have questions about uh, the the logic behind that one but you know that's the thing about artificial intelligence is that uh, you you let it run wild and it begins operating on a level that we can no longer connect with
0: that's right you don't know if it's too stupid to be funny or if it's so far over your head
1: that you'll never catch up right could be either way uh (laughs) So luckily, Carney is still obeying his basic programming. He is still bringing us listener mail. And, of course, everybody out there, you're still sending us listener mail related to our Stuff to Blow Your Mind episodes, our Artifact episodes, uh, our Weird House Cinema episodes. So once more, we have a selection of listener mail to consider. That's right. We've got the
0: seasonal yearly inundation of dad jokes and – uh And we're very excited to get right into them. Rob, do you want to start off? Let's see. uh, Should I read this one from Brett about the Nile inundation? Go for it. Brett says, hello, Joe and Robert. I hope this note finds you both well. Just wanted to write a quick note about the Nile episode and how you guys were able to take it to a biochemical angle. You have had Daniel Whiteson on your show before, and he has mentioned a quote about the ocean that I forget in detail, but it goes something like, We left the ocean when we learned to take the water with us. Now it seems we should say we left the water's edge, not necessarily the ocean. Uh, now, I could be wrong about this, but I think we have had Daniel Whiteson on the show before. Uh, Daniel Whiteson is a physicist and one of the hosts of Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe. Uh, and Daniel was a great guest on the show. But unless I'm mistaken, Brett, I think you're actually remembering us talking about Brian Green's book, Until the End of Time, where uh, Green in the book is explaining the role of water in biochemistry. And he quotes the Nobel laureate Albert sint Georgi, who said, quote, Water is life's matter and matrix, mother and medium. There is no life without water. Life could leave the ocean when it learned how to grow a skin, a bag in which to take the water with it. We're still living in water, having the water now inside.
1: I should say it would be easy to confuse these two interviews since they occurred so close together. Um, I remember we we, I think we talked to to, to Daniel Whiteson and then basically the next episode or the next week was when we talked uh, to Brian Green.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. But uh, but who knows? Maybe I'm forgetting something that we talked about with, with Daniel that was very similar. Uh, but anyway, it, I think, yes, th- this makes a good point that what uh, Sint-Georgi was saying is sort of true in a broad evolutionary sense, but it's also a little bit too simple because, as we, we talked about in the Nile Inundation episode uh, you can't just have a cell be a bag of water. A cell actually needs to very tightly control and regulate what happens to the water contents inside it because of how dangerous water can be to organic molecules. Or I guess especially the, the long chain molecules needed for life like DNA, RNA and so forth. Uh, but anyway, Brett's message goes on. You mentioned organic chemistry and how water is the enemy, which it can be for sure. As an organic chemist, we try to use anhydrous, meaning free from water, solvents, and reagents daily because of the sensitivity of the reagents to something as polar as water. Water causes byproducts which we then need to remove. But this is more about how reactive our reagents could be to one another, which helps us design and synthesize drugs for disease. But I'm getting sidetracked here. The reason I write today is because of a basic process of life that all amino acids undergo to form peptides. When two amino acids link together, they form an amide bond from an amine and a carboxylic acid. And the waste product of this step a water molecule. As you can see, water is the essence of life because it is derived from the process of making life. It's very interesting. Our cells then had to learn to regulate how much water was in the cell as more and more peptide bonds were formed, but this is at a very small amount relative to the size of a cell. Please keep the twists coming. I really enjoyed how you were able to start with crop growing for food and uh, led it to how life might have started. Definitely one of my favorite podcasts, and I look forward to what you guys will discuss next. Cheers, Brett.
1: Yes, our uh, discussions are are, are a lawless affair. You never know where they're going to go, what we're going to end up talking about. Uh, It's very, very free form uh, some of the time. Maybe chaotic, but I hope at least chaotic good. One would hope. All right. Uh, we received a lot of uh, feedback from our dad jokes episode, which we knew would be the case, uh, given how uh, connected people are to the topic, either you know, parents making bad jokes or just bad jokes in general and humor itself. Uh, so we're going to get into some of these now. This first one comes to us from Mark. Good evening, gentlemen. I hope this finds you well. I loved your episode on dad jokes and thought I would share one of my own creation, I am assuming. The rule of infinite probability predicts either someone has already made it or will soon enough. Anyway, here it goes. Question. What do you call a questionable toilet? Answer. A skeptic tank. Hope you enjoyed my lame joke. Thanks for all the knowledge, Mark why does mark get a voice have we I ever have, done a voice know. for a
0: listener before
1: <laughs> i don't know just because he's i don't know good evening gentlemen tended to uh demand it so it just happened good evening to you mark <laughs> <laughs> uh a skeptic
0: tank okay uh, uh yeah okay close yeah
1: yeah i like it i think it'll work <laughs> I would tell it to my son, except I'm not sure he knows what a, what a septic tank is at this point. I'd have to first school him in that, then wait, wait a few days, uh, and then release the joke on him. Um, so just educating him as a precursor to sharing humor.
0: Dad, why the six-hour lesson about septic tanks? <laughs> just wait until Thursday. It'll all come together. All right. This next message comes from Jim in New Jersey. Jim says, Robert and Joe, the purpose of dad jokes is to embarrass your adolescent children in front of their adolescent friends. If you can't embarrass your children in public from time to time, why even bother to have them? Jim in New Jersey. P.S. I didn't get the assassin joke until I listened to it for the second time. Oh, yeah. That one is rather tricky, isn't it?
1: (laughs) Uh, uh, This is a good point uh, that Jim raises. And uh, I think one that I don't know how much we've got into it, but I, I think this does fall under the category of, like, the, the teasing joke, um, uh, you know, the, the joke as a way of teasing, parental teasing as one of the, the categories of teasing that humans engage in.
0: Yeah, and one of the things we talked about in the episode was the uh, the possibility that sometimes when you make bad jokes at, like, an adolescent or teenager, it can at least elicit some kind of noticeable reaction from them when not mm-hmm. much else does.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from uh, Sebastian. Hi, Rob, Joe, and Seth. For the recent Dad Jokes episode, I just wanted to add a couple of bits of information. The first is that in French, or at least in Canadian French, the equivalent term to Dad Jokes is, uh, and forgive me, I'm terrible with the French, uh, Les jokes de mon oncle, or... (laughs) um, or, Le Blas de Monaco, depending on your region, this translates not to dad jokes, but rather to uncle jokes, with the understanding that dad ah. jokes in French are a lot more brown and blue than in English, and that it's considered to be the responsibility of the uncles to corrupt their nieces and nephews when the sister or sister-in-law isn't there to shush them. Many a Christmas dinner have led to comparisons of gravy ugh, to diarrhea as soon ugh. as the matriarch's attention is diverted in a French household.
0: This is what we hear about, that sophisticated French sense of humor, that that
1: (laughs) we Americans, you
0: know, just, we can't get there.
1: Yeah, Uncle Pierre. Um, uh, Anyway, they continue. The second thing is that I take mild exception to your using the Army Sleeveys joke as an example of a dad joke. Maybe it's more of a Canadian thing, but dad jokes here are usually considered more contextual and opportunistic. They tend to be cheap and fast and lack structure and to be tied directly to observations in the immediate environment, such as pointing out things that look like a butt or deliberately mishearing things. Oh, God, this is a big one. Mom says you should thank your dad, causes the dad to say I should shank the cat. Uh, For this angle, dad jokes are more like riffing, albeit a more infantile type of riffing based on crass humor. Uh, Yes, the mishearing things was um was pretty big in in my household and also from I think from my dad. But I always I didn't know it was universal. I was kind of chalked it up to the fact that my dad's hearing uh, was a little uh, like his hearing was a little bit damaged. So Mm -hmm. I think he oftentimes did not hear things all the way and found humor in them. And then kind of pass that form of humor on to all of us so that we're all intolerable in, in conversations with other people. No, I think that is more universal that uh, – I think that's a kind of classic movie riff where
0: the, whatever is in the dialogue is hard to hear and then you can you can go off of it. I can't think of a perfect example right now. But I know there's a lot of that on Mystery Science Theater.
1: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Anyway, they continue. Similarly, there's a growing concept of mom jokes that I've seen more and more, at least among Canadians. Whereas dad jokes are innocent and crass, mom jokes tend to be more exhausted and beset upon and oftentimes rather dark. So when a kid might say, I don't like broccoli, a mom joke would be to reply with, you're going to die of scurvy if you don't learn to ram that in your face. Or if you say... I don't think those shoes will go with that dress. And they reply with, "Welp, I guess I should just go lay in a ditch and wait for the cold grip of death. In other words, whereas the dad joke is exceedingly immature, the mom joke tends to be exceedingly mature. Jokes about death, disease, abandonment and isolation and other uh, darker topics. And usually with cartoonish hyperbole and either a deadpan or over the top delivery. But most importantly, mom jokes like dad jokes are contextual and can't be repeated unless in a similar way context hmm. now this is this is interesting um i wonder i mean one would be tempted to sort of take like sort of traditional stereotypical um like gender roles mm-hmm. and apply that and think well okay if you have if you have a, a mom who maybe is around the kids more like they're forced to speak and even uh, employ humor at a child's level and then you you want the release of making a joke that is more sophisticated or darker, uh-huh. and whereas it might be the, res- the reverse with the sort of the stereotypical dad, right? Like the dad has been at the, I guess, like the Mad Men era office all day, making all sorts of body and sophisticated jokes. And when he <laughs> comes home, he just wants to make uh, like crude, dumb, but ultimately innocent jokes. I don't know. Uh, I, 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 like I say, that's probably, a, a, I'm, I'm sure that's a very simplistic way to look at it, and it's ultimately more complicated than that. But, uh, but I don't know. This is
0: interesting. I'm very familiar with this kind of humor, but I guess I've never heard of it conceptualized as a mom joke before. That's interesting.
1: Yeah. Uh, Anyway, they close out here with, I think the point of dad and mom jokes is that they are the unwanted punchline to a setup that nobody made. (laughs) Like a parasite of laughs on a tense situation. A traditional joke with a standard setup and a standard punchline feel like they fall outside of this kind of humor. Domestic improv, in other words, at least to me. Hope things are well, Sebastian.
0: Well, that was a searing assault on my use of the Army Sleevey's joke as as an example. So according to Sebastian, a joke with a setup and a punchline is not a dad joke and can never be a dad joke.
1: Uh, speaking of the Army Sleevey's joke, I tr- after you shared it with me, I tried it out on my own son, mm-hmm. and he already knew the punchline. And thought it was hilarious. Um, now, I don't know how much of that was the fact that he knew the punchline and therefore it was not my joke. It was his. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but he thought it was just high humor.
0: Well, there's no higher praise than making a child laugh or not True. praise. Uh, what, what was it? No higher honor than making yes. a child laugh. Uh, One last one about dad jokes here. This one comes from Danny. She says, hi, I'm a mother and love making my son groan with dad jokes simply because it's fun to be able to annoy him a little bit. Kids can be quite annoying at times. And here is a small childish way to annoy them back. And sometimes he even laughs at how much my jokes annoy him. Love from Switzerland, Danny, (laughs) the revenge factor. We didn't even think about that. All right. Are you ready for some spoons? Let's do it. Okay. This one picks up after we read a message from a listener on previous listener mail about a spoon that was designed to discourage left-handedness. And it could only be easily used at least with the right hand because the bowl part of the spoon bent to the left. And we talked briefly about how I remembered at least one of my teachers in elementary school telling me that when they were growing up, left-handedness was bullied out of them by adults who thought that there was something wrong with it. I don't know if it was a religious thing or just a sort of cultural, uh, you know, no, you need to suck it up and learn to use your right hand like you're supposed to. I'm I'm not sure what that was. But Darren, uh, Darren has a story along those same lines. So Darren says, hi, gents. I've listened for years, but the latest Listener Mail episode really spoke to me. Back in 1981, growing up in South Yorkshire, England, our class teacher of German descent told us stories of him having his left hand tied closed as a child. He told us this almost apologetically, as he was aware his now right-handed writing was sometimes difficult to read. Ironically then, at school, there would be an incident only a few weeks later where we were in the dinner hall having school lunch. The headmistress singled me out for having my knife in my left hand. She berated me, saying that I needed to eat right-handed, and I tried but couldn't. Embarrassed to the point where I took a stand as a nine-year-old, I walked out of school, the headmistress furious at me and my classmates cheering. All the way back home, yes, walking from school was a thing. My parents at first were annoyed I was home early, but when I explained why, my dad went down to the school, and let's just say that he made it clear that I'd continue using my knife with my left hand. I tell my daughter this story, and she is amazed that this was only really a generation ago. Thank you for hopefully taking uh, time to consider this email, and thanks for continuing to blow mine and my daughter's minds. Kind regards,
1: Darren. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's... It's crazy that this sort of thing took place I mean if sort of um, now it seems crazy and and I don't know it's hard to imagine at the time how that would have how that was 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 allowed. I don't know it's just yeah crazy to think about,
0: okay, I'm getting more convinced that maybe we should do this as, as an episode and look into like why is it that they were do i mean was it just the idea that well, a lot of things are designed for right handed people and it'll be easier if kids learn how to use the right hands for things or is it more like a I don't know, superstitious religious thing where it's like the the left hand is the hand of the devil.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. um, I I remember there being at least a little bit of that uh, mixed in. Yeah. It's been a while since I looked at it. So, yeah, we should we should think about coming back to this as a topic. All right. Here's another one. This one comes to us uh, from Maeve and it is uh, about spoons once more. Dear Robert and Joe, I just finished listening to your excellent Spoon episodes. Regarding the fancy silverware that never gets used, I have a story. My mother hated silverware because polishing the silver had been one of her household chores when she was young. However, she and my father were rather badly off financially for many years, so they used sterling silverware because they couldn't afford to buy a set of stainless flatware. The silverware had been a wedding gift. When I was about 10, they bought stainless, and we never used the silver again, not even for holidays. (laughs) It just amuses me that the stainless flatware was the aspirational purchase, given how expensive real silverware is. They gave me a nice set of stainless steel flatware when I got married. Also, I submit that sporks are the perfect utensil for baked potatoes and for mango halves. Thanks for all the great content. Maeve.
0: Now, Rob, do I need to stop you from exploding with invective against Maeve for defending (laughs) the use of sporks?
1: Um, I mean, I guess if, if they, if they want to use them fine, but, um, <laughs> I, I would argue, I mean, a spoon works perfectly fine on a baked potato. I don't know why anybody needs a fork to get in there. And, um, uh, mango halves. I guess mango, the thing about mango, I will admit is it does tend to be a bit slippery. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that is, that is where one might insist upon having some, some prongs, on your utensil. Uh, though I've certainly never used a, a spork to eat them. Maybe hmm I'm trying I think I've just used a spoon to eat mango that has been like properly cut up and all, but I don't know. It's rare I get my hands on a mango in this household because my son eats them all. I didn't
0: include the full message but we did also get a piece of email from somebody who wanted to talk about grapefruit spoons.
1: Yes. Now that I uh, I will I will argue strongly that a grapefruit spoon is not a spork. But I I do believe in grapefruit spoons. I think they are they are very handy. Uh, I prefer to use one when I eat a grapefruit. Though I was once, this was when we were, um, at a, uh, you know, more properly, I guess, when we were how stuff works. I remember eating a grapefruit with a grapefruit spoon. And there was somebody else, like they worked in the office, and they they began, uh, they were getting on my case saying, no, the the grapefruit spoon is not the way to go. You need a grapefruit knife. You need a special knife for eating your grapefruit. That is the only way to eat them. The spoon is malarkey. Is this Strickland? Uh, No, uh, (laughs) I don't remember who this individual was. They weren't. Uh, like in our department. I think they were in more of a technical uh, role in the company. Oh, okay. But it was one of those where, like, they were coming on kind of strong, and I think I kind of, like, backed out of the room <laughs> with my grapefruit and spoon. I mean, maybe the argument was, like, this is a better way to eat your grapefruit at your computer because certainly, like, when you eat a grapefruit, when I eat a grapefruit with a, a grapefruit spoon, it still makes kind of a mess. Like, you, you're going to get some sprays of citrus. So mm-hmm. uh, maybe the knife... Cuts down on that to a certain extent. I don't know, but you
0: know that was back in the glorious time when we had cubicles, and those cubicle walls could protect your next door neighbors
1: from the citrus spray. That's right. At least it's only you and your stuff that are getting doused in uh, citrus juice. Right in your
0: in your dank cave of bones. And we. I remember you had some really weird decorations when I first moved in.
1: Oh uh, well, you know, stuff kind of accumulated. No, I mean it was good.
0: I was like, <laughs> I, I could see your desk, and I was like, that's good, people. <laughs> Okay, this next message comes to us from Paul. It is about sun dogs and halos. Uh, Paul says, Hi, Robin Joe. Just had to throw this link your way regarding halos and sun dogs. One of the most impressive I've ever seen. Thanks for the great comment. And then Paul attaches a link to an astronomy picture of the day uh, entry. Uh, APOD is a, a thing that NASA does where they collect cool. Photographs of natural phenomena and photographs from, uh, from space and stuff. This one was by a photographer named, uh, let's see, Magnus Edback, and it's from the 21st of December, 2018. If you want to look it up, the caption uh, title was Extraordinary Solar Halos, and this one is fantastic. The caption explanation says, quote, Captured at lunchtime on a cold December 14th near Jutendal, Sweden. The image includes the relatively ordinary 22 degree halo, Sun dogs, or Parhelia, and sun pillars, the extensive array of rarer halos has been identified along with previously unknown features. All the patterns are generated as sunlight or moonlight is reflected and refracted in flat six sided water ice crystals in Earth's atmosphere. In this case, likely local contributors to the atmospheric ice crystals are snow making machines operating at a nearby ski center. That's interesting. But the yeah, you, you, this picture is worth looking up. It is gorgeous, and it looks almost like the Earth is plummeting down a tunnel made of suns.
1: Yeah, this is impressive. It looks, I, it, I, I'm, I, it, it kind of seems like a cosmic church window to me. Yeah, or indeed like some sort of angelic visitation. It almost has like the makings of some sort of a inhuman face. Uh, it's this is gorgeous.
0: But that's hilarious. That this may well be aided by the utter artificiality of a snowmaking machine. Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
2: Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, get admission,
1: All right, uh, for this next one, if you're listening on a device that has a way to speed up things, uh, speed up our voices, uh, go ahead and speed us up to about 3X. (laughs) Because it will be appropriate. This one comes to us from Jesse. Dear Robert and Joe, on the most recent Listener Mail episode, 32221, someone wrote in mentioning that they listen to podcasts up to three times speed. Robert, you mentioned that while you are listening to sped up audio, you feel like your mind speeds up to keep pace and you find it unsettling. Joe, you notice that it affects the way you perceive the speed at which someone is speaking in regular conversation. I, too, have have sped up podcasts to get through backlogs. I notice that when I listen to podcasts at a higher speed, I feel increased stress as my mind has to work harder and pay closer attention so I don't miss anything. But more than that, if I listen at increased speeds for a few days or more, I feel like it starts to affect my own speech. I notice I tend to speak more quickly, which means my mind can't always keep up and I end up tripping over my words. Another thing I've noticed is when I slow down a conversational podcast, such as Stuff to Blow Your Mind, to around uh, 0.8 times, it has a subtle relaxing effect. This intuitively makes uh, sense. I don't notice it slowing down my speech, but I suspect this is because I do this exclusively for podcasts that I put on to help me get to sleep. This is not when I do most of my podcast listening, so perhaps it doesn't uh, have to have as much of a chance to mess with my head as it would during the day. One last thing. As other listeners have admitted, I too have listened to Stuff to Blow Your Mind to Get Me to Sleep. When uh, it is your turn, though, uh, it is a vault episode that I turn to. That way I don't feel like I am missing out on anything. Please know that you are not boring, just calm and relaxing. Stay brilliant. Jesse.
0: Oh, thanks, Jesse. Oh, my God. I can't imagine listening to us at 0.8 speed. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds
1: so drunk, just hammered. Uh, yeah. If you if you heard me laughing a little bit or uh, through, through my reading of that, it's it's uh, yeah, n- not not because there's I'm, I'm, I'm judging Jesse for doing this, but I'm just imagining that if I did that, it would be kind of like nightmare juice because I have like literally had nightmares in which voices are slowed down. Mm-hmm. So it's not something I really um, I really like, <laughs> but I could I could see where it could be relaxing for someone else. I mean, you and I both have Tennessee speech anyway, which
0: is already on the slower side of accent pace. And mm-hmm. uh, oh, man, that I that would be rough.
1: But anyway, it's interesting to, to, to hear from everyone, you know, just uh, it, there's so many nuances to how people listen to podcasts that uh, it's always interesting to, to pick up on what the trends are. And I guess it, well, it used to be not as easy to do this, right? I mean, when did iPhones and so forth start getting that uh, that speed up, slow down option?
0: Oh, I don't know. I feel like that's app dependent for me. Yeah. Depends on what I use to listen. Google Podcasts will, will let you pick pretty much any speed you want.
1: Yeah. But of course, they're also like trying to shame you and to listen to everything. I notice. Like uh, when yeah. I use it, um, it's like I go to a podcast I haven't listened to in a few days. And it's like, have you given up on this podcast? Do you still want <laughs> to be subscribed at all? And I'm like, yes. I just wasn't in the, the car for a few days. I still want to keep up with it. Don't make me feel bad just because I. Just because I'm like, you know, a few dozen episodes behind, I'm going to get to it. But seriously, we love you, Apple. Okay. Uh, Let's go on to our next one. What do we have for us here, Joe?
0: Okay. Now we got some messages about Weird House Cinema. All right. Some very substantive messages about Weird House, I will say. This first one comes from John. John says, Hi, Robert and Joe. I just listened to your Weird House Cinema episode on Hands of Steel, and I enjoyed it a lot. I actually passed through Page, Arizona last week, and after leaving uh, town, walked on the Navajo footbridge where the finale took place. It's a great but vertigo-inducing view of the Colorado River before the canyon really widens out. I'm also writing because I noticed a funny connection between the movie and its real world setting. Although I can't speak for acid rain. I remember in the movie there was a mm-hmm. there was like a stationary acid rain hazard. There's like a sign on the highway that's like warning you're about to drive through acid rain, which was pretty great. Um uh sorry, John goes on uh, although I can't speak for acid rain, the state of Arizona does have an ongoing history of water and land pollution from mining, including groundwater pollution by the acid waste of copper mines. Southern Arizona has a high concentration of large, open-pit copper mines, and in order to extract the copper from ore, strong acid solutions are often used, along with other toxic chemicals. These waste products can leach into the surrounding environment, including into groundwater, endangering surrounding communities. A good resource on this is the book Boom Bust Boom, whose author Bill Carter recalls being poisoned by the vegetables in his own garden in Bisbee, Arizona, a mining town and learning mm. that his house was built on the arsenic and lead lace tailings from a nearby copper mine. Wow. And John attached some uh, photos, one an aerial photo and one from the ground level of one of these open pit copper mines that has been partially filled in. It is a, it is a truly dystopic site. Yeah. looks kind of like a, like a Coliseum for earth elementals. Mm-hmm. Though I guess if you're an earth elemental, I'm not sure what kind of animals they would throw you to. Uh, maybe like some kind of rock dissolving fungus or something. I don't know. We'll, we'll come back to that idea. Um, but then John goes on. I briefly lived in Ajo, Arizona, which has its own open pit copper mine. The now-retired pit still has a turquoise and toxic pool at the bottom, and the tailings pile from the mine dominates the landscape, images attached of both. Oh, that's what these images are, okay. Uh, While there, I was told that the tap water had more arsenic than would be ideal, but I can't say whether this was from the mine or some other environmental factor. It was fun to see a connection between the film's vision of dystopian environmental degradation and the stuff that goes on in the real world. Sometimes American truth is stranger than Italian fiction. For a future weirdhouse cinema, could I suggest altered states? Given that mm-hmm. the podcast has discussed Timothy Leary and Terrence McKenna at length, this movie might be appropriate. It seems like the writers did some brief reading about traditional uses of psychedelic mushrooms and sensory deprivation, did mushrooms themselves, and then wrote a script. Thanks for all the fun and interesting conversations. Best, John. Uh, with Altered states? Am I wrong in thinking that was written by Patty Chayefsky, the same person who wrote Network?
1: Uh, that sounds familiar. Yeah, yes, that is correct. Wow! Uh, yeah, so it has an interesting uh, writer, and then of course it's a Ken Russell film. Uh, so I mean, yeah. I, I feel like we probably do need to uh, take on a Ken Russell film at some point. I assume you've seen Altered
0: States, right? I have.
1: I have. It's been a long time since I watched mm-hmm. it in its entirety. Uh, so it would it would totally be a different experience watching it now. But uh, it could be a pretty fun one. It's got some neat connections in it. John Larroquette is in it as an X-ray technician.
0: Oh, that's funny. Uh, so uh, my main memory of it is that uh, William Hurt is the main character, yeah, and he plays a, I don't know, Timothy Leary type, some a, a, an academic who becomes interested in the use of psychedelics and in sensory deprivation tanks. And uh, he starts to discover that as he like does more and more sensory deprivation, he like regresses to some kind of pre previous state of existence and uh, which is an interesting idea, but I think it sort of ends up with him just like turning into a werewolf.
1: Yeah, he's in some sort of like uh, caveman monster mode uh, towards the end, as I recall.
0: But in an interesting coincidence, this next piece of listener mail also concerns sensory deprivation.
1: All right. This one comes to us from Dan. Uh, Dan writes, Dear Robert and Joe, I made the unfortunate mistake of watching the Janet um, uh, Agron video of Teddy Bear that Robert posted on his Muta Music blog. And now I am trapped in the Hellraiser labyrinth dimension, just as Joe had warned. I should have listened. While the pain and anguish has been unbearable and my suffering soon to be legendary, my Cenobite masters have permitted me to send you this listener mail. By the way, they're big fans of your show. Earlier this week, I was going through the show's archive and listened to the creepypasta experiments episode that Robert did with Christian. In this episode, you discussed one creepypasta about a Russian sleep experiment that descended into violence and madness and related it to your own experiences with sensory deprivation and isolation tanks. It made me think about how the last 12 uh, months since the COVID pandemic forced me to start remotely working from home that in order to get through my day, I need to listen to a lot of podcasts to keep me focused on my job. Ironically, if I don't have some kind of auditory stimuli, I lose concentration, focus, and find I cannot function in a complete silence. Perhaps this is related to how I used to work in a very noisy office with a lot of phones ringing, people talking, laughing, and various machines going off, and I need to replicate the illusion of being in the company of a lot of people to maintain some sense of normalcy. I wonder if you've had similar experiences since transitioning to your home offices. Apologies for the lengthy email, but I must now be going. CD-ROM Cinebyte is calling; <laughs> they have such sights to show me. Keep up the great work, Dan.
0: Well, I'm so glad Dan remembers there is a CD Cinebyte. CD Cinebyte shows up in the third one that's in that weird club.
1: Yeah, I think he's a what is he's like several ideas kind of slammed together, right? Mm-hmm. He's um, it's like a bartender,
0: like a, I think. Bartender I think
1: a, and a DJ and like a CD face. Um, yeah. Uh, at time, uh, we may have to do uh, Hellraiser 3 Hell on Earth at some point because it is kind of like the Gremlins 2 of Hellraiser films, Ooh, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, where every Everybody at the, the writing table gets to uh, design their own cinnabite for the movie.
0: <sighs> that movie is just a, a ladle full of vegetable shortening. It is <laughs> gross. <laughs> Okay. Uh, wait, What was I going to say? Oh, yeah. Well, this is an interesting idea, Dan. Yeah. I sometimes find that uh, certain types of music and noise can help me focus on tasks, but not any kind of music or noise. And uh, I don't know. It, I guess it depends on what kind of work I'm doing. But yeah, there can certainly be a thing, I think, for some people where it, it can be harder to focus if you have less stimulation, because if you have less stimulation, you're more likely to let your mind start to wander you know, pe- yeah. people who are prone to rumination, and then you get distracted by your thoughts.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I can't take silence at all. Like, I'll I'll be listening to Deepesh Mode, and they're like, enjoy the silence. And I'm like, no, that's why I put you <laughs> on Deepesh Mode, so I don't have to hear the silence. Now, just keep singing so I don't think too hard, uh, uh, or something to that effect. I don't know. You know, it, it varies. There's different, depending on where I am during the day, uh, I might need something more ambient or... or or something a little more um, complicated. But then also it's like we live in such an area that I'm sitting out on the front porch working like I don't really need any music. There's plenty of noises going on, like there are multiple trains going by. There's traffic, there are dogs, there are lawnmowers. Uh, There's plenty of of auditory stimuli uh, to keep me on task.
0: You know, I got to say, one of my all-time now uh, productivity albums is an album that I never heard until you shared it with me. It's Biosphere, The Petrified Forest.
1: Oh yeah, that one's so good. I put that one on to work all the time. I mean, all the time. That's a, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, can't beat Biosphere. Uh, play play a lot of Biosphere. I also play a lot of Steve Roach. Um, yeah, listeners out there, let us know. Do you have particular ambient or even not so ambient tracks uh, or artists that you turn to, uh, to to work either during the pandemic or you know just in general? Uh, let us know. We're always uh, always looking for listening suggestions.
0: Oh, another good one that I've been listening to lately to
1: work is Cluster Zuckerzeit. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Uh, old, yeah, older, older stuff, but but great. Still stands the the, the test of time. Okay, one last message
0: here. This comes to us from Kenny. Kenny says, Dear Robert and Joe, hi there from Scotland. I'm a longtime listener who, like many others, enjoys your podcast in the evenings, often letting them play as my wife and I go to sleep. This leads to some very confusing blended episodes as we fall asleep to a discussion about Jovian moons and wake up in the night to a debate about ancient fungus. I recently listened to your Weird House Cinema episode about Ewoks, The Battle for Endor. And Joe made an observation that the gas giant around which Indor orbits, uh, being depicted on the horizon as absolutely enormous, apparently taking up half the sky... The point was accurately made that even from the vantage point of an observer on Io, Jupiter's innermost moon, the gas giant would only appear to be a fraction of the size of Tana, indoor planet, and that this was done for dramatic effect rather than accuracy. However, this got me thinking about how our own moon appears when it is high in the sky, compared to how it does when it's on the horizon. The moon obviously doesn't change size, but it often appears to us as if it does. As far as I'm aware, The mechanism by which this occurs is not fully understood, but this is referred to as the moon illusion, and has puzzled observers since antiquity. It is now commonly accepted to be a psychological rather than a physical phenomenon. The moon obviously doesn't change size, but it fools us into thinking that it does. This effect seems to have something to do with context. When the moon is high in the sky, and there's nothing around it to give it scale and help us judge distance, we see it as relatively small, because our brains interpret it as being very far away. When it is on the horizon, however, the moon often appears to be much larger, and it may be that when there are other objects in our field of view, this tricks our brain into perceiving the moon as significantly closer. Perhaps an observer on Io would perceive Jupiter to be truly vast as it rises and sets, but smaller and ever so slightly less intimidating when it was higher in the sky. That is, if they lasted long enough to perceive anything at all before they succumbed to their radiation bath.
1: Yours, Kenny. And of course, if the moon is to the left, it's a part of your thoughts, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, and a part of my thoughts is a part of me—is me.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, uh, so so Kenny raised some wonderful points here. Uh, This, but I, I will just jump in real quick. This has nothing to do with their content, but they mentioned the, the Indoor movies, the uh, Battle for Indoor, the Ewoks movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you out there listening are not aware, these are finally coming to Disney Plus uh, next month. Uh, I'm very excited uh, by this because when we recorded the, the, that episode on the Battle for Endor, one of the things we stressed was you sadly have to go to like Russian YouTube to watch these things right now right. or, uh, you know, pick up a, a used uh, DVD. But soon the, that, that battle will be over. These will be available on Disney Plus uh, along with the the excellent uh, 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 Tardakovsky Clone Wars series. So uh, I'm excited for that. Oh, and the animated segment from the holiday special with Boba Fett in it.
0: But not the whole holiday special.
1: Right. That's That's a crime. Couldn't know. I mean, I think it just could not be allowed. It needs to remain in its prison. (laughs) That's where the gods put it this
0: is a good choice yeah so they're uploading the ewok so now are we going to be able to get the wicket the ewok manson family eyes in 4k uh
1: yeah yeah hopefully so i i haven't heard anything about them restoring doing any kind of restoration on it or certainly adding any effects to it so i i'm guessing it'll be in its in all its glory now one wonders uh on the on the question of um of possible cursing in the film if wilford brimley actually did anything like cursing uh, which has been an argument that's been made. I, I wonder if they're going to go in and remove anything. I wonder if they're going to make any changes. Uh I'll be interested to find out.
0: If they take out Wilford Brimley saying the F word, that is that is censorship that will not be tolerated.
1: Um, allegedly. We don't know that he, for sure though, that he's using the F word, but some have made that, that case. If they take out the
0: Brimley F word, this is Stalinist Russia. Absolutely <laughs> unacceptable.
1: <laughs> well, we we shall see. We shall see. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close the book on everything uh, right here, but this has been your uh, weekly listener mail episode. Uh, So, yeah, write in. Let us know. Do you have responses to what we talked about in this episode? Do you have responses to our Core Stuff to Blow Your Mind episodes or to uh, Weird House Cinema? Let us know. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. We don't have time to read everything in these episodes, but we do read everything that comes in. Uh, If you would like to uh, follow our podcast. Uh, check out the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Uh, wherever you find that, just make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. And don't don't let whatever whatever your listening platform is, you know, d- don't let them try and shame you. Don't let them give you a hard time about uh, skipping an episode or or having to catch up. Or and certainly listen at any speed that your brain can bear.
0: Huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.
3: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio.
0: For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent.